thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah, that was wonderful. Uh, in the uh, coming weeks, next week we uh, will be coming to the Lord's table, so we uh, don't typically uh, hear testimonies on those weeks. But um, in the weeks to come, we, we have a lot of people to hear from, whether it be new members or people who are you know recently baptized, gave their lives to the Lord, or you know, people have come back from mission trips. So a uh, lot to look forward to. Uh, here's something to look forward to. Uh, trivia question for History Buzz. Let me try and scan out to see who are our History Buzz in here. 1956, the President of the United States was a man named... Right, who? Sounded like a sneeze, but... Uh, <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower, President of the United States, he sent forth an order that said, from this day forward... The new national motto of the United States of America is going to be, say it again, who said it? Okay, good. In God we trust. Okay, in God we trust. You know that 1956, Eisenhower said that. In God we trust, and it began to be printed on all the currency uh, that was put out by uh, the American, whoever it is that makes money. Earlier this year, uh, an atheist group, atheists, people who don't believe in God, filed a lawsuit <clears throat> demanding that this motto of our country be changed because it puts an unnecessary burden on our hearts to believe in, let alone trust, a God that we don't believe exists. And people say this is a sign of the times. People trying to take a one nation under God away from the Pledge of Allegiance. People say it's a sign of the times and and. All kinds of uh, people, especially who are for uh, religious liberties and things like that, are saying, oh, our nation is falling apart. What do you do when the foundations are being destroyed? What do you do when the foundations of a country are being destroyed? Maybe you think back, and you can, you can remember this, the founding fathers. Can I tell you some of the things upon which our nation was founded? Some of the founding principles. George Washington, our first president uh, the United States, he said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. That's the, the first president of our country. Okay? So if George Washington was our president, he'd say, it's right, impossible. Patrick Henry, famous for saying, give me liberty or give me death. This is what he said. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation, talking about America, was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Noah Webster, he said, the moral principles and precepts contained in the scripture ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. All the miseries and evil that men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. He believed that those people were talking about this nation, America. What do you do when the foundations seem to be falling apart? What do you do when the foundations are being destroyed? Not just in a national sense, but in your life. What do you do when your life seems to be falling apart? When the relationship that you thought was going to end in marriage falls apart. When 
financially, your world, your life falls apart, and that foundation is destroyed, and it begins to crumble. What do you do when, when, when whatever it is that you define life as begins to fall apart? You lose your job. You lose your hope. Whatever it is that your foundation is, when that's destroyed, where do you go? What do you do? What's next? This is a question that the psalmist asks in Psalm chapter 11. Over the next couple months, we're going to spend the summer in the Psalms. We do that for, we've done this in the past because the Psalms are uh, self-contained as units, but also, you know, you can, you can read them as a whole, but each of them also tell a particular story. They tell a particular message. And that's why as people come and go throughout the summer, uh, it's a great time for us to look at the psalm. They ask questions like, what do you do when your foundations are being destroyed? They are gritty. They are raw. They are earthy. They are real. They are honest. Prayers to God. Asking questions that we ask in our hearts, but we don't have the language oftentimes to speak. And therefore, they've been instructive in my life and in many other lives throughout the years to be able to give a voice to the voiceless when we feel like we don't have the strength or the voice or the ability to get before God. Reading through the Psalms gives us an opportunity to get into the presence of God so that we could experience and encounter him so that we may not get answers, but we can get the truth in the form of a person. What the Psalms do is they tell us that there is a reason to continue to trust. And so for the next two months, we're going to ask questions like this. Where do you go when life falls apart? What do you do when your foundations are being destroyed? Psalm 11, if you would turn there with me in your Bible, if you have it. Psalms are typically uh, right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 11 is written by <clears throat> David, a king, during a difficult time in his life. We don't know the exact context, but there's a lot of speculation. A lot of speculation that is written uh, during the time when uh, his life is in danger, as we can see. Uh, Psalm 11, we'll read it, and then I'll try and set it in its context, and then we'll try and see what uh, the Lord is telling us through this. This is God's word. In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yeah, that's what his friends are saying. His response, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men, his eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. But the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. This is God's word. So what's happening here? For the director of music of David, it says, so David is writing the psalm. Uh, David was a guy, he was a young shepherd boy under the rule and reign of a king named Saul, who was the first king of Israel, when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, David, you're going to be the second king of Israel. You're going to be a great king. And so initially Saul, the king at the time, thought that's pretty cool. You know, I got a, I got a guy in training. But slowly the allegiance and the affection of the people of Israel began to shift from Saul to David. They said things like, oh my gosh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. 
And they're saying, dude, we can't wait for this new king to come. He's a bad man, and we want to put our support behind him. It's kind of like in athletics and sports and football, basketball, baseball, whatever it is, when there's an OG, right? These guys are the, the legendary people, and then there's these new young whippersnappers who are taking the league by storm, and everyone is saying, you know what? They could be the greatest of all time, and the original guard, the old guard, the original gangsters start getting upset and jealous and saying, these guys are not that great. And, they, it, and it gets to the point where in Saul and David's life, <clears throat> where Saul is so filled with insecurity and jealousy and fear that he begins seeking David's life. Throws spears at him. He hunts him. He chases him down to try and kill David because he cannot deal with the fact that somebody could be overtaking him. Now, most commentators will say that's the context in which David writes this psalm. We can't be, uh, can't be certain, but we know that David's life is in danger because his friends are saying people are lying in wait to shoot you with bow and arrow. So what do you do? The question that David asks then, the question that his friends ask actually is where do you go? What do you do in verse 3? says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Right? When the foundations are being destroyed, when life is falling apart, what can we do? The question that we may ask. I want to uh, throw that question out there and, and, and just give us four thoughts from this psalm. Okay, the first thing is this. When life is falling apart, the temptation will be to give up and run. Okay. Don't. When life seems to be, when life is falling apart, the temptation will be to give up and run, but don't do that. It says in, in, in verse 1, here's David's confession, verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. So he's saying, I'm not going to run. But he says, here's the temptation. How then can you say to me, he's talking to his, his friends, flee like a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the string. So they're saying, David, dude, the foundations are being destroyed. You're righteous. You've been trying to do it right. Here's what you got to do. You need to run like a bird to the mountain. Just go, get away, give up. It's, it's hopeless. There's nothing you can do. So run as far as you can away from the problem. And what David is saying is don't do that. Don't do it. There's a temptation, isn't there? When life seems to be falling apart to do that. A few weeks ago, um, Olivia was, it was in the morning. Olivia was making breakfast and I was making coffee and our kids were sitting on, on the mat in the living room and they're playing with something. And Elijah and, and Elise, our four-year-old and our two-year-old were playing with something and Elise started getting upset. She started like fussing about something. So we looked over and her and Elijah were fighting over a toy. To a two-year-old, this is kind of like your life is falling apart, right? And so Elisa's life is falling apart, and Elijah yanks the toy out and says, No, Elise. And she starts crying. Right? This is like life, your foundations are collapsing. Everything is falling apart. He says, No, Elise, and he looks at her while she's crying. And then this is what he said. I don't know where he learned this, but he said this, and I wrote it down because I thought it was, I thought it was kind of humorous. He said, No, Elise, and then he pointed and he said, Go back to babyland. <laughs> Go back to babyland. And I said, Elijah, that's pretty clever. Where did you learn that? Go back to babyland. But that's a temptation that his friends of David were saying, Go, just get out of here. Just flee from this. Your life is falling apart. Get out of here and run. And David says no. But why? Why would he be tempted to run? It's the same reasons why we're tempted to run away sometimes. The first thing you see in verse 2, look, the wicked bend their bows. Hey, Legolas is wicked. He's bending his bow. 
And he's setting his arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows. You can't see him, but he's trying to take out the upright in heart. Okay, wherever there may be somebody lurking to try and take your life. The reason we might want to run is because we're afraid. You ever wanted to run away, to just give up and run away because you were afraid of something that was to come? Wednesday nights, we have prayer meetings. Uh, in one of these rooms here, we have prayer meetings. And usually the format is the same. We'll, we'll begin with prayer, we'll sing a song, we'll hear a devotion, and we'll, we'll pray. And the devotional is typically shared by, you know, it's either myself or one of our house church shepherds or another leader. And I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, so I'm not going to, but... There is a conversation that was being had. The person who is going to share the devotional at prayer meeting this Wednesday was confiding in her friends saying, this is, this is terrible. I'm so scared. I want to flee the country, is what she said. I want to flee the country because I'm afraid of what is to come. You ever wanted to run away because you're afraid of something? Maybe it's not just a personal thing. As you hear about all that's happening, did you know? In the aftermath of Super Tuesday, the initial Super Tuesday in the Republican primaries when Donald Trump won, pretty much dominated Super Tuesday. The most searched term on Google was, how do I move to Canada? This is like historical fact. You can find it on Google. They said it increased a thousand times, a thousand percent or whatever it is. And the Canadian government, their websites were so overwhelmed that they shut down at 12.06, okay, Tuesday night, 12.06, Wednesday morning, midnight, they had to issue a statement saying, we're so sorry, we're experiencing severely high volume, and we are unable to deal with it. We'll be, you know, hopefully it'll get up and running soon. So many people in America wanted to run away because of the Donald. Maybe it's not the Donald, maybe it's the Hillary that's causing you to run away. But what do you do when fear causes your foundations to tremble and you feel like life is falling apart? The temptation is to want to give up and run away. Another reason why we might be tempted to run away, it says here in verse, uh, in verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? I mean, listen, when, when, when the foundations are being destroyed, what are you going to do? What can you do? There's nothing you can do. It's this sense of despair. It is what it is. You just can't do anything about it. It's a sense of frustration. When we're afraid, when we're frustrated, the temptation is to give up and run. You ever feel like that? I'm so frustrated with work. Frustrated. I'm just going to get away. I'm going to pack up and move to Canada. I'm going to run far, far away. I can't deal with all of this, the erosion of religious liberties in our world. I can't deal with any of this stuff. I'm going to get away. The temptation is to get up and like a bird, flee to the mountains. Can I ask you, where's your mountain that you want to run to? When life gets hard, what's your mountain? Where do you go? You go to the clubs to distract and drown yourself so that you don't have to think about the ways in which your foundations are being eroded? Where do you go? You go online, you go to social media, you put something else up. Maybe if everything is falling apart, at least I can get likes, I can get loves, I can get people to affirm me. Where do you go? What's your mountain that you run to? Is it Netflix? Is it your uh, incessant addiction to that TV show? 
You just, I can just escape reality. I just want to run away. When my life is falling apart, when the foundations are being destroyed, I'm going to run. Here's what the first thing he says. When life falls apart, the temptation is going to be to give up and run. He says, don't. The second thing that we see when life falls apart, pray that God would be bigger in your eyes. This is, what, this is what David's saying. I have found my refuge in God. Even though they're telling me to run away, give up and run, he's saying, no. Here's what I'm saying. David's saying, here's what he's saying to us. Pray that God would be bigger in our eyes. Here's our problem. When our problems seem big, it's actually a vision problem. When our problems seem so big that we want to run away, it's because our God has become too small. It's very simple. When our problems become overwhelming, I can almost guarantee with 99% certainty that we have not been in adequate time with God in the word and in prayer. When our problems seem too big, it's a vision problem that our God has become too small. If you've got a small God, your problems are going to be big. And if you've got a small God, then you've got a big problem. And so David says, pray that God would become bigger in your eyes. I I remember a song in college. Um, I just remember it resonated with my heart because it really spoke to the situation I was in. It says, Um, I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh, God, forgive me. And I have believed in a lie that you are unable to help me. So in my life and in my song, oh, God, be magnified. To magnify means you, you, you can't see something you put on. Glasses, reading glasses that magnify. You can't see something, you, you, you put it under a microscope that magnifies. You get a magnifying glass and that which is little becomes bigger. Right? In my life and in my song, oh God, be magnified. I have made you too small in my eyes. That's what David is saying. When we pray, I mean, listen, you, you know this stuff. I'm not telling you anything new. You know that when your problems are overwhelming you, you need to pray. It says it in almost every book of the Bible. You see it on memes all the time. You see it on pictures that are shared from Christian albums. Your problems are too big. Pray to a God who's bigger, right? Don't gaze at the problem and glance at God. Glance at the problem and gaze at God. We, we know all that stuff. But have you experienced it in power in your life? Every time I feel overwhelmed, I feel like I want to run to my mountain. Every time I've prayed to the Lord God, I have never come out of that time of prayer without a sense of relief and release and peace and joy that I thought was elusive before I went into the place of prayer. Every time, every time. Because when we pray, we get into the presence of God. God becomes resized. Our problems become reshaped. David can say, listen, I know that God is big. He can be magnified because of what he says in verse four. And these are some powerful things he says. The Lord is in his holy temple the lord is on his heavenly throne he is extremely instructive in terms of who god is by explaining where god is how do you how do you know how do we when something that is big becomes little why does that happen and how can we reverse that by looking at verse four when he says he's in his holy temple what do the temple symbolize it symbolized the presence of god the nearness of God, the intimacy with God, with his people. Here's what David's saying. The reason I don't need to run to the mountains is because God's in his temple. He's near to me. He's here 
with me. That's why I don't need to be afraid. I'd rather be with God in the midst of the war field than without God in, in a valley or a mountain anywhere else. I'd rather be with God in Babylon than in Jerusalem without him. That's what David is saying. He's in his temple. He's near. But not only does he say he's near, he says he's in his, well, he says he is on his heavenly throne. It means not only is God near, but he's reigning on his throne. And not only is he's near, is he near, but he's powerful. You, if your problems have become so big, do you know that God is near to you? And do you know that God has not abdicated his throne? He hasn't changed his address. He doesn't have a forwarding address that the mailman only knows. God is on his throne. He's still the king. And a lot of times we make that which is so big, so little. How? I was trying to think, who is the biggest person that I know? And I thought about people in our congregation, but I didn't want to put any strong, muscular men on the spot. So I thought about The Rock. You guys know the, the wrestler, the action hero, The Rock? Yeah. So I thought about The Rock. He's big, right? He's a strong man. Uh, I know because I saw San Andreas. He's, he's massive. So you're talking with a friend who doesn't know who The Rock is. Dude, do you know The Rock? Right? That guy is huge. Like, no, and they're like, no, I don't know who The Rock is. And see, you're, you're in an airplane talking about The Rock. And then all of a sudden you look down and you're like, oh my gosh, well, there he is. There's The Rock on the ground. And your friend looks at him and, and, and says, you know what? No, he's not that big. He really is not that big. Why does he who is so big become so small in the eyes of people? Because we're not drawing near to them. Because we're far from them. But when we get near to them, when you get near enough to smell what the rock is cooking, then you begin to realize how big he really is. Okay, that's when you begin to realize. And all of a sudden, your friend says, wow, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. He really is that big. Why? David could say that because he knew that God is in his temple. He knew the nearness of God. You also know how big someone is, not by getting closer to them, but by seeing them in their power. So, you know, you're in California, and all of a sudden, the San Andreas Fault begins to have movement and big old earthquake. And, you know, everyone else is falling into the cracks uh, in the earthquake, and and everyone is, is dying. And you know you're a goner. Then all of a sudden, here comes the rock, and he's running in his, his like, boat, and there's water everywhere, tsunamis because of the, the fault lines breaking, and... And he's riding, and he's like, hold my hand. And so you reach out your hand, and he, he's like, oh, you, you lose, lose a grip, and all you've got is his pinky, but still with his pinky, he picks you up, and he brings you, and he rescues you. You can say, my goodness, if anyone ever says to you, Rock is not that big. You say, you want to make a million-dollar bet? He's huge. He's huge because I saw his power. I know his power. That's why I know that he's big. This is what, this is what David's saying. We want to run to the mountains because we lose sight of who God is. The fact that he is near and the fact that he is powerful. And he's the king. He's not just uh, on his throne. He's reigning on his throne. That he's still the king. And David saw that. That's why he didn't need to run. When our temptation, y'all, is to run because of fear, because of frustration... 
typically because we're not seeing how near God is or how powerful God is. At the end of the day, we're not seeing how big God is. Can I tell you that on June 10th, this was like, what, two weeks ago? Two weeks ago, the foundations were being destroyed for a group of people who lived in a hardworking town in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. Did you know? Their foundations were being destroyed. Why? Because all of their hopes, not only economically, but as a city in every way, personally, were placed on a group of people called the Cavaliers. And the way that their foundation could be brought back to life is if somehow, somehow, this group of 12 men could come back and win three games in a row against the mean bullies of Northern California, the Golden State Warriors. I think about the Warriors against the Cavaliers. Right? Who's going to win? The Warriors are dominating three games to one. Never in history had a team come back. And so there was a group of people in Cleveland who said, you know what, forget about it. It's over. Let's just give up. Let's run. Let's go to the mountains. It's done. And they started trashing and looting. There was another group of people that said, but wait. We don't need to run because we still have the king on our side. And they believed. They said, the king is for us. He's near to us. And he's still reigning. Even though he's getting older, he's still the king. What do you do when fear and frustration sets in? The temptation will be to run, but David says, no, don't don't run. Pray that the king would be enlarged in your eyes. The second thing, third thing we see. When life, when life is falling apart, God may be about to do something big in your life. Understand, guys, when your foundations are being destroyed, when it seems like life is about to fall apart, God could be about to do uh, could be about to do something big in you. If you read through, and you, you'll see this as we go through the Psalms, the Psalms follow a very familiar and predictable storyline. Okay, here's how it begins. There's a declaration of truth. This is the setup. Uh, several, uh, maybe a couple years back, I preached on Psalm 73. Here's a setup of Psalm 73. Surely God is good to those in Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, that's a setup. It's a statement of truth. The second thing that happens in the Psalms is that that set up, that statement of truth gets attacked, gets assailed. After the set up is the upset. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. Why? Because I saw the arrogant, I saw the wicked, and I began to envy what they had. This is when the foundations fall apart. Everything that you knew to be true, everything that you believed were true is now falling apart. The setup has been upset. But every psalm comes with a third part. There's a setup, there's the upset, and then there's the reset. We're in challenging, in asking, in praying, in fighting, in coming before the Lord God. The original thesis that they stood, that they, uh, that they believed and they pronounced, which had crumbled to the ground, was rebuilt and reset in a new way, but in a way that was a little bit deeper than it was before. He's not just saying, here's my truth. Uh Uh-oh, I doubt that truth. Okay, now I believe it again because of what God did. No, 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 he's not saying that. He's saying, here's the truth. It gets beaten and beaten and beaten down by doubt, questions, fear, frustration. That, That foundation crumbled and fell, 
But God is going to rebuild that so that the foundation is deeper the next time that statement gets challenged. Every setback is a setup for what God is going to do in another period of your life. Just the time you think that you're, just the time I think that I'm at peace with the world that's mine. I feel at ease. I feel at home. I know I'm not alone. Then in my rest, there comes a test that shakes me till again, I know that what I've had is not enough. And again, I've got to grow. This is what David is saying. Your foundations are coming apart. Hey, that's not a bad thing. In verse five and verse six, this is what he says. This is what he says. In verse four and five, he observes the sons of men. His eyes examine him. The Lord examines the righteous. He's saying the Lord is giving a test. He's testing the foundation. But every time your foundation is destroyed, you have to remember that the one who's doing the shaking, it's the very hand of God. Your good, good father who's shaking you to show you that your foundations are not strong enough so that in deconstructing, you can reconstruct upon a more solid foundation. When your foundations are being destroyed and your life is falling apart, you need to get your running shoes on because God may be about to do something new and something big in your life. You believe this? Every psalmist, sometimes it's because they see the answer, the reset, that they can declare that faith. But a lot of the Psalms, they don't see it yet. They're speaking in faith and trusting that faith is going to fill in the gaps. This is my prayer when the answer is still on its way, right? It's a desert song. It's my song in the desert. When triumph is still on its way. Can you still trust God in the middle of the song, in the middle of the story, in the middle of the Psalm, in the middle of the foundations being rebuilt? How could it be that this was the most historic NBA finals in the history of basketball. I'll tell you why. Because Cleveland had to go down three to one. No team had ever come back and won from down three to one. And I'm not a Cleveland fan. I'm not a Golden State fan. I'm just saying no team had ever come back from three games to one down. But it was that setup, and the foundations had to be destroyed in order for this to be the great defining moment that it was. Why couldn't it have been three to two? Because they had to come to the very end of their rope to say, okay, we're in big trouble. We need to rebuild this foundation. When your life is falling apart, when the foundations are being destroyed, y'all, you got to understand God may be about to do something big in your life. The last thing, when life falls apart, the last thing, make sure that you're on the king's side. Now, throughout um, the Golden State, Northern California area, there were some people that really wanted Golden State to win. I don't know if they wanted Golden State to win as much as they wanted Stephen Curry to win, right? A lot of people wanted Curry to win. And I know for a fact that there were some people who cried after Cleveland won. Right? People who really, really wanted Golden State to win. In fact, they cried so hard I didn't even know this was, I know you can cry hard to the point of hyperventilating. But did you know that there are people who actually cried to the point of hiccuping? Did you know that? Did you know that was even possible? And if you don't, then ask Hannah Chong. She'll tell you it's possible <laughs> that you can cry so much to the point where you begin to have hiccups. Why? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, in this particular in this particular situation, she was crying and they were crying because they were on the wrong side. 
What if someone told you, hey, every NBA final from here until the time you die, I will tell you exactly who is going to win so that you can cheer for the right team. Wouldn't that be awesome? Make a lot of money, save you from a lot of heartache. You would, everyone would be like, dude, how did you know? You'd be like, oh, they're so smart. David says, I can tell you whose side is going to win every time. You got to get on the side of the king, not LeBron. We have a king who's far greater. Our God who reigns in heaven. You want to win every time? Get on his side. This is what he says. Verses 5 and 6. He says, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. That doesn't sound good. But ultimately what God is saying and what these psalmists are saying is that whenever they talk about this stuff coming to the wicked, it's saying basically, it's giving word to what you and I really do believe. That there will be a day of reckoning for those who've been wicked. That people who commit audacious and horrific crimes against people, fellow human beings in this life, who get a slap on the wrist of a prison sentence or get a slap on the wrist of a sentence or get let go with some kind of a plea bargain, that a day of judgment is coming and there is a God who's going to make all that is wrong right. He's going to fix all of that stuff. Deep in our hearts, we, want, we need to believe that Psalm 11, 5 and 6 is true. That there will be a day when all of this stuff is straightened out, when everything that is wrong is going to be made right and everything that is broken is going to be fixed. We long for that day. And the confession of David is, even though right now there's fear and there's frustration, doesn't look good, he says, the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And the upright men will see his face. That I will, I will be vindicated because of what God is doing, because God always does his way right. How can we be so sure? One of the things that you'll hear me say often when we read the Psalms is that every Psalm presents the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because every psalm can be either sung by Christ or sung about Christ. You can see Jesus in every psalm that we see. How can we be certain that God is our refuge, that we can be safe in him? How can we be certain that he who loves justice will prevail for us? Because you look at the life of Jesus. He is the truly righteous man. He's the one whose foundation began to crack. He's the one who wicked men hid in the shadows to unjustly arrest him, to point their arrows at him, whether he knew where they were coming from or not. He was, and it says in verse five and verse six, on wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Translated there to make it helpful for us, but literally what it says is that these things, a scorching wind, will be their cup. The reason why, the reason why we can put our complete confidence and hope in Jesus Christ as our refuge, to know that he will treat us as the righteous if we put our trust in him, is because he drank the cup and received the lot of the wicked. It was upon him at the cross that the burning sulfur and the fiery coals were rained down on him. It was he who said in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, if possible, let this cup pass from me. 
yet not my will, but yours be done. And the will of God was that in order that the righteous, by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, would have an ever-present refuge, the nearness of God, the power of God, the reign of God over our lives, is because Jesus Christ took the lot of the wicked and took the punishment that you and I deserve in order that we might have refuge. The man Jesus who was on the run becomes the God Jesus to whom we can run and find safety in a time of need. This weekend on Friday night, I was at a funeral service for, um, for a, a brother who passed away and went home to be with the Lord. And in that funeral home, there were two chapels. And it was such a juxtaposition, a contrast in one chapel, the gospel presented and preached, uplifted, exalted, a genuine and real mourning, and yet not a mourning that was filled with hopelessness and brokenness and forever tears. In another chapel, there's a Hindi funeral going on. They're singing the Hare Krishnas. People are outside smoking. People are outside crying. And as our funeral service ended, I could hear just the incessant wailing that was coming from inside of that Hindi chapel. Why? Because there was hope in one. And there was hopelessness in the other. Because the one had put his trust in the king. He got on the side of the king. I don't know where your life is, man. I don't know where your life is falling apart, where the foundations are being destroyed. But it's just like playing chess. No matter how many pieces are taken off of your board? As long as your king is standing, you've still got hope. And as long as at the end of the day, you're on the side where the king remains, you will win. And you will see the face of your king in glory in heaven. Draw near to him. This is our hope in life and in death. My brother, my sister, are you tempted this morning to give up, to pack up, to run away, to go to the mountains? Today, are you saying, this is my, this is my only chance, only chance I'm giving this Christian message a chance? This is it. If I don't get hope today, I'm out of here. Can I tell you that there's hope? I tell you there's hope even in the darkest of nights because there's a king who reigns. There's hope even when life falls apart. There's hope even when the foundations are being destroyed. There's hope because you have a king who loves you. He's near to you and he's reigning. He has not given up his throne. He's not taking applications for a better king. He is the king and he rules eternal. And he says, get on my side. I'll carry you through. Not get on my side in lip service, but in really giving your life, your trust to him, to me. Not just talking about it, not just complaining about it, but getting in, giving your trust to him. Not throwing up your hands in resignation of hopelessness, but saying, God, I'm moving towards you. I believe now you're chasing me. You're coming after me, and so I'm running after you. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Let's come before the Lord. Let's pray. Just a couple moments. Move towards the King. He's here with us. If you know people who are going through hard times, let's pray for them. Let's lift them up. Let's ask the Lord God that he would meet with them, that he would give them the hope that he alone can give. Let's pray for a couple moments, and then I'll pray for us, and, and then we'll continue.
Father in heaven, we pray for all the situations in our lives where the foundations seem to be falling apart, where the temptation and even the sage counsel we've received is to flee to the mountains. We pray for our nation. We pray for our people. We pray for our city. We pray for our church. We ask, loving Father, that you would help us as we see before our very eyes the ways in which our foundations are being destroyed. Help us not to look at it and say, well, someone else will do something or there's nothing we can do. What can the righteous do? Well, may we rise up and realize that there is a ton that the righteous can do. We get on the side of the king. We call on your name. We believe that greater things are possible in us. And when the foundations are crumbling, it may be that you're about to do something so big that it needed to deconstruct and reconstruct upon a healthy foundation. So help us. Be magnified in our eyes. Draw us near to you. Teach us to pray, to find in you our refuge and strength always. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.